episode 84 of the Pilot the Pilot podcast takes off now. My name is Ilya Sabanin. I'm a, I'm a pilot uh, currently living in the U.S. I'm a commercial pilot and an advanced ground instructor. Currently, I'm a candidate for a CFI. I was born in Russia in Soviet Union, and I moved to the U.S. eight years ago. I want to share with American pilots, American general aviation population, the story of how it looks like in Russia. And it doesn't look really good. Uh, spoiler alert. What is going on, Aviation Nation, and welcome back to the Pilot to Pilot podcast. My name is Justin Seams, and I am your host. Have you ever wondered what general aviation is like in other countries, specifically Russia? Well, today is the opportunity to find out. I am talking with my buddy, Ilya. He is from Russia. He has moved to the States to, to further his flying career and to fly for fun and to do more training and to get more ratings. But we dive into what it was like flying in Russia, how he found his flight school, how he first found it out and figured out how to fly an airplane with skis in Siberia. So it's a great episode. It's something that I was just truly honored that he reached out to me to share some of his stories, to talk about the differences and talk about some of the great things and the great opportunities that we have in the United States for general aviation and aviation in general. So I hope you enjoy this episode. If you do, please leave us a review on iTunes. Check us out on Instagram at Pilot the Pilot and go to our website, pilotthepilothq.com. Com. You can also find links to Patreon, Instagram, Twitter, and everything there. And also check out my shop. We have a shop for some Christmas cool Pilot to Pilot stuff. It's uh, Pilot to Pilot shirts, t-shirts, uh, hoodies, and a bunch of other stuff. So go ahead and check that out. But Aviation, I don't want to keep you any longer. So without any further ado, here's Ilya. Ilya, what is going on, man? Welcome to the Pilot to Pilot podcast. Uh, I'm happy to be here. Thank you. Yeah, no problem. I'm excited to uh, to have you on and talk with you a little bit about your story and what you mentioned in the intro about just the, the differences in general aviation in different countries and how great we have it here in the States and the differences between where you came from and Russia. So I think it'll be a great conversation. Yeah, I think it's going to be very interesting for American pilots because uh, U.S. is is a very, very special uh, place for flyers. And there's really no place like U.S. anywhere else in the world. Well, I usually start the conversation off by asking what it is and what the reasons you got into aviation was, but I feel like I kind of want to start this off with the differences and what it was like in Russia with with aviation and flying and stuff. So why don't we just kind of go get right into it and talk about what your experience was like with general aviation in Russia and what the overall outlook is in Russia with general aviation. Well, so the first thing that's very important to understand is that Soviet Union, which is the country that preceded Russia, did not have private aviation uh, right from scratch from the from the from the time soviet union has has begun there was only military and um uh, commercial aviation so the airlines a thing when somebody owns an airplane and somebody flies for their pleasure or whatever it just didn't exist and it it, it still baffles a lot of russians when they think about private aviation they just can't understand it most of the population there was um even even getting a car in russia was difficult a normal citizen couldn't get a car without a permission from the government, and the, gov- the citizen would have to write a letter explaining why they need a car. After that, they would be allowed to buy a car, but usually they would have to wait you know, 10 years in line to get one before one is available. So you can understand, like, getting a plane was not even, you know, it was not even an option. So when I was growing up, uh, I was born in 87, uh, that's the end of the Soviet Union, so I was growing up in the 90s. Soviet Union didn't exist back then already, um, but um, 
the young Russia still inherited all, most of the Soviet Union stuff. And I think maybe in the 90s there was at some beginning of private flying in Russia, but I haven't seen it because I was born in Norilsk City, which is behind the Arctic Circle. We, there was not a single school, a flying school. There was not a single instructor. There was, there was nothing. There was literally nothing. We didn't have an aviation museum of any kind. So, but I was lucky enough among my peers because every summer I would go to southern Siberia to my grandma. Would, the, the only way to get out of Norilsk is to fly an airplane, commercial airplane. So once a year I would go to this big airport and I would see these giant airliners and they're, I still remember seeing their tails sticking out behind a fence. And um, that was a, such a magical experience for me because I only experienced it like once or twice a year. And I still remember, you know, that smell of the burning jet A fuel and it, which still gives me chills. I go to the airport. I love when the jet would taxi uh, passed me and I would smell this jet A. And I think that's why I kind of got the bug when I was a kid. And I started, uh, you know, I had like a big bookshelf in the house with my dad's all kinds of books about, about North and Arctic and stuff. And I knew exactly which book on which page has a photo of an airplane. Oh, wow. <laughs> because we didn't have any specific airplane books. Um, so I had to kind of get by with, with normal books. Um, yeah, so that's how it started. And, but I was discouraged from the early age by my parents and, and everybody that, you know, flying commercially is very difficult, not smart enough. You know, it's physics, it's math, and, you know, you don't have good health and stuff like that. So I never seriously considered becoming a commercial pilot in Russia. I kind of, you know, forgot about it. And uh, then my family moved to southern Siberia. I went to school, all that stuff. Uh, they went to college. And one day I saw a, an ad in Krasnoyarsk, in, in, in another city where I was living, about um, private flight school, like become a private pilot or something like that. And I, I remember I was so confused, like, what do you mean, private pilot? What is that? Like, right, like, can you just, what? I was so confused. So I called them right away. And I said, yeah, we have an airfield. We have a couple of uh, Ukrainian light sport A-22 Foxbat airplanes. And uh, we can teach you to fly, like starting, you know, this week. You can, you can do a first flight with an instructor. It blew my mind. I was like, oh, my God, what the hell is this? Um, by that time, I was already having a pursuing career in technology. And I was working for an American company uh, doing web development. So I had some spare money. So I could actually afford it because it was very expensive by Russia, even by American standards. We're flying light sport aircraft. Um, so I got kind of like an equivalent of a light sport license. And I think it cost me a deal like fifteen or $16,000 flying light sport. That is expensive. What was, uh, what was kind of the, obviously you said there wasn't much of private aviation in the Soviet Union and pretty much nothing then. And then even coming up, it's like, well, why, you can't do this. You can't do that. What was the reaction from your family? They were like, well, I'm actually going to go get my, my, my pilot license. Everybody was confused. It was <laughs> basically, it just, general aviation just does not exist in lives of normal Russians. Like, no culture. There's no community of pilots. There's no like equivalent of AOPA or sporties or anything like that. So everybody's like very, very confused. What, what the hell are you doing there? Where are you flying? Why are you flying? What is this about? So it was, it was one of the difficult challenges is finding um, people, like-minded people who are into aviation. There was a few folks at the airfield, of course, but outside of the airfield, as soon as you leave the airfield, you feel like you're like 
entering a different world where nobody really understands what are you doing and nobody really understands the joy of flying. Yeah. So how would you say someone gets to be a commercial pilot in Russia? Is it the military route still or do they just kind of get all the ratings and kind of find like a modular track like they have in Europe? So right now it's it's a very difficult topic because it is impossible to get a commercial certificate right now in Russia unless you go to a government school. Government school is kind of like a part 141 college situation when it's at least three years. You can't do it remotely. You have to be on premises. You have to live in like, a, you know, half, half military style arrangements. And you have to go to lectures and you have to listen to like go through the ground school and stuff like that. And I think at the end of three years, you only get 160 hours of flight time or so. Um, which is, uh, you know, it's a big bummer because for people who are already past their a young age, they can't afford to drop from their life and go for three years to a college. Uh, that means that basically this door of becoming a commercial pilot is kind of closed. So who usually joins that? Who usually goes that route? Do you have to be pretty young, like you're like 18, 19, 20, and you kind of follow up, get 160 hours, and then you get picked up by an airline? Or do you find another way to go build time? Uh, yeah, so the airlines are very desperate right now in Russia because People are leaving Russia. You know, you can work as a as an Airbus captain in Russia, but then you can do the same exact thing in in Asia or somewhere else, and 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 earn three times more money. Uh, so, which is why it's difficult for Russia kind of uh, contain people from leaving. But they created some rules to to help with that. So, um, by the time you finish that school, the government school for commercial pilots, you're pretty much going to be picked up into the right seat of a of an Airbus uh, right out of a school. Which is, uh, you know, safety-wise, I'm not a big fan of this. I don't think it's a great idea, but uh, I also don't think uh, that uh, the Russian airlines have a lot of options on their hands right now. Yeah. No, I mean, yeah, you, it's kind of all hands on deck. Like I said in a couple other pockets, like, oh, you can fly? Come on, let's go. <laughs> Here's a 321. Well, you'll, you'll figure it out. Here's a captain. He's got a couple hours in it. <laughs> He'll teach you everything you need to know. Yeah, yeah. That, I think that's their, that's why they, it's acceptable for them because they think, well, there's a captain. He's very... He or she is very experienced, so we can do the right seat uh, pilot, whoever, like 160 hours. That's fine. Um, it doesn't always work out this way, though. And um, uh, safety-wise, aviation Russia has, has taken a, a, a hit lately with, with a few accidents. So I was about to ask you that. Would you say the, the general perception in Russia for like Russian citizens is that aviation maybe isn't safe or is more unsafe than maybe other places? It's pretty widespread that uh, Russians, <laughs> there's even a saying in Russia, you better take the train. Oh, really? <laughs> right. <laughs> well, so Aeroflot is pretty solid. At least it was very solid. I think the last time they just crashed an airplane, an airplane in Moscow. I, I think you saw a bounced landing for the Suhoi uh, Superjet or whatever it is. Um, but before that, they had a very good safety record. And... Um, but there's a lot of other smaller airlines in Russia, which have a, like really dicey airplanes, really dicey uh, flight training standards and, and SOPs. So I personally would never fly some of those smaller airlines for sure. Yeah. I don't know if you have an answer for this. It's kind of a tough question, but like, why do you think maybe those airlines and kind of Russia might have a worse kind of aviation reputation than other countries because it's a massive country and there's just so many places to go fly and do you think it is kind of because of the soviet union and they didn't have pilots coming up and training to fly for all those years and they're kind of in the infancy of aviation still or do you think it's just kind of a 
a uh, a training aspect where they're just not doing proper training and they're just trying to get as many people flying as possible. I think it's just a tough life, really, because it's it's those small companies are really trying to survive. They have very, very, very razor thin margins, and so they're trying to save money on everything they can, which includes, of course, maintenance. and And they get pilots, whoever, whatever pilots willing to fly for them, they'll take him or her. Um, Soviet school of aviation was actually very strong. So back in Soviet Union, being a pilot was very prestigious. And, and they, every pilot, if you wanted to fly big, big metal, you had to finish five years of college. Like, or you had to get a master's degree to fly an airliner. And, um, so Soviet school of flying, I really have no problem with that. And, and Aeroflot, which is the uh, Russian Soviet Union's, uh, you know, it's Russia. In Russia, there's still Aeroflot airline, but it was the biggest airline in the world back in the days. So it existed. Um, so I think they had a very, very strong uh, uh, contingent of pilots, if that's the right word. Yeah, no, that definitely I mean, that makes sense, and that, that definitely makes sense. And I think that's also faced in other countries as well. I don't think it's just a, a Russian thing. Obviously, with very very thin margin of error and just uh, profit margins aren't as strong as for some airlines as they are for others. Especially one that like between like an American airline or especially American airlines or like United against like um, an Indonesian airline. You know, it's like they'd have to operate at very thin margins. Yeah, yeah, it's diff- difficult. And like, if you look at the major airlines in the US, even those get bankrupt every like, you know, 10 years or so. So even for them, it's very difficult. But but Aeroflot is fine, because Aeroflot, they don't say they, they buy new airplanes, you know, they buy new Boeings and Airbuses, they buy. So they, they really have the best equipment and the best maintenance, stuff like that. So I really don't have any problems with Aeroflot. However, they are also suffering from this automation dependence problem, which the whole world is suffering from, and which is the latest Suhoi Superjet bounce landing. Is a good good uh, demonstration of that, of course. Oh, is that reliance on automation? I never really looked too far into that accident. Yeah, they had a. I think they had a lightning strike, which kind of killed some of their electric stuff, which kicked the airplane back into the direct mode. So all of the assist stuff was turned off, kind of like an Airbus. Um, and in direct mode, they don't. I, I, as far as I understand, the pilots don't really practice too much landing it in direct mode. And, and apparently it lands differently without all those assist, uh, flight assist stuff. Yeah, it's one of those things in training where like, oh, it'll never happen. You don't have to worry about that. And then it right. does happen. <laughs> yeah, it did happen. And if you look at the video of a landing, it's like, well, it's horrendous. You know, it's like a student pilot uh, on a first landing on a 152, uh, just like bounce, 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 boom, break, fuel everywhere, fireball. You know, like I understand direct mode, difficult. Okay, you have an unstabilized approach. Go around. They had fuel. They actually had, they were, they were overweight. They had so much fuel. You know, circle for three hours, pull out the manual, read everything about direct mode, call the maintenance on the thing. There's options. Or fly a couple approaches really low and then go around and figure out how it flies. Yeah, so there's really no excuse for that. Well, it's also really easy to uh, to judge someone from from an accident like that. We don't really know what was going through Absolutely. the thought process and everything. <laughs> right. So I don't want people to think that we're just fully judging them and telling them that they did a bad job. So there's a tons of factors that go into this, so... I just yeah, want to get that disclaimer out of the way. As a pilot, I like talking about aircraft accidents, but absolutely, uh, it's all in the in the final report. That's that's what I'll Yeah, well, I think it's health. I think it's good and like healthy to talk about accidents, and because we learn from our mistakes, we learn from accidents. It's unfortunately one of the only ways the FAA or aviation in general seems to kind of learn about aviation, how to make it safer, is once it does happen. Because, like you said, everything's about profits. Everything's about those margins and safety. 
creaks into those margins. The safety starts taking away from their money. So they don't want to spend that until they have to, you know? It's a very unfortunate thing that a lot of times lives have to be lost for something like that to happen. But it's unfortunately kind of the world that we live in. Yeah, and it's a big differentiator between pilots and what we do and other, uh, you know, like race car drivers or the doctors or whoever. Because uh, I, as I talk to people, I notice that not every, not every, uh, um, not every, uh, not every, not every professional is looking into is is dissecting accidents like we do in aviation. Because sometimes I read about the, about accidents and people who are not into aviation they get surprised. Like, why do you read about these accidents all the time? They don't get it. Uh, because really, I think there is a lot of benefit in, in studying that stuff for sure. Absolutely. No, there definitely is a benefit in it. Because like I said earlier, it's how we learn. We learn from other people's mistakes and we hope that they survive from their mistakes. And we've all made mistakes. We've all been in the, the pattern with a young low time pilot or maybe you're high time and you took a scenario or a landing for granted and you just bounce the crap out of it. Or you scared yourself. And it's like, all right, I'm never doing that again. So it's, it's how we learn. It's really how we learn. <laughs> Right. It's pretty wild. But I kind of want to talk more about your story, too. We can kind of intermingle the, the more Russian general aviation talk into your story because it's very interesting. You emailed me and it just kind of like captivated me when you said that you first learned how to fly in a light sport equipped aircraft on a snow covered soft field with temperatures ranging to negative 25 degrees Celsius on your training flights. Talk a little bit about your training and kind of the environment that you're in. Yeah, so after after the Coptic called the flight school, I went the same week I went to the airport. I think it was February or January. It was really cold. It was minus 25. Well, by, by Siberian standards, it's considered okay weather. It's yeah, not you really probably cold. had shorts on, huh? Well, <laughs> no, that's an American thing. We don't wear shorts. <laughs> that's funny. And uh, so, yeah, I came to the airfield and they have like these two really tiny airplanes. They kind of look funky, uh, but they're really good airplanes, uh, A22 Foxbat. Um, it's a two seater, it's very light and, uh, they didn't have wheels on them. They had skis and, um, we had a discovery flight. I was, you know, it was mind blowing. I actually got a little dizzy, which got me concerned. You know, how am I going to become a pilot if I get dizzy? I was a little upset after the flight because of that. I was all uh, very overwhelmed because it was like radio work and all that stuff. And it was like, it was crazy. And I, I was thinking to myself, like, I will never be able to do any of that. Like, there's just no way that I can fly this thing, that I can talk on radio, that I can, you know, know where I am and, and I can land that thing back. Um, uh, but landing that thing back was an interesting challenge because, yeah, it was a snowfield. It was an aerodrome. Um, but, you know, in the winter, it kind of looks just like a big field, which is like plowed, but it's still snow. It looks white, right? And uh, on skis, there is no brakes. So you kind of land, and if you land long, then you really can't stop the airplane. There's, you just have no brakes. You can do a little bit of S-turns on landing and do it during taxi the same way. Like if you taxi too fast, you you know you don't have a way to stop. So you have to really be um, mindful of that. But other than that, landing on skis is very soft, very I would say it's even probably easier than, than the wheels because first the back of the ski touches and then kind of it works as a spring and then the, you know, the, the rest of the ski touches the ground. So it was really, really nice. And, and my first, my very first landings were on skis. So for me, it's like a no, no big deal. Um, and then, yeah. So, and then we had an accident at the airfield and then I had to make a, a break in my flying uh, while they were investigating the accident. The airfield was closed. Um, Somebody went through the fence on an airplane. And was they, it one of the planes that you would rent? No, it was uh, somebody bought a new, brand new Italian airplane, which is like from Russia. It's a Technam. Um, 
and they flew it in and so it was brand new beautiful airplane i remember i was at the airfield that day i was i looked at that airplane i was like oh my god this looks amazing <laughs> i want that plane and like i will and again i'm always pessimistic about it but it's like i will never be, i get a chance to fly something like that because the cockpit it was steam gauges but everything is brand new looked really beautiful and that same day they crashed it and no. <laughs> it exploded in front of my eyes oh, i was no. standing and 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 it was taking off went through the fans and exploded and, and just in front of me and i was a um, student pilot so you can imagine the kind of uh you know ideas that were running through my mind luckily nobody got seriously injured or injured or uh, killed which is uh, a very big luck that's really interesting because when you are a student pilot or even kind of coming up the ranks when you have low time like you kind of have this this feeling of like invincibility like you're never like you hear about some stuff that's happened or how you can get yourself in dangerous situations but you don't really you don't really have the um the kind of experience to see and to, to see accidents or to put yourself in a bad situation. So you kind of feel like you're invincible. What was seeing that plane go up in flames and being like, Oh my gosh, this is like real. Like I am putting my life in danger every time I go fly. Yeah. If you fly long enough, you're going to meet people. I mean, you're going to see situations like, Oh yeah, I knew that guy who crashed last week and stuff like that. But I, I probably had like 15 hours at that time. And that was the first time that I experienced that. Oh, okay. That it, like it's serious business. There is, there's no margin for error here. And like people actually hurt themselves and die if they do something wrong. But, um, so yeah. And after that, we didn't fly for like a month or two months, if I remember correctly. And, um, but that did not deter me from flight training further, even though I had a long, long time to think about it. Uh, but actually trying to think back about it, I had no doubt, like I'll continue flying anyway, because I don't know, it, it just seemed like, you know that yeah, that's a risk, but it's it's manageable risk. If I do the same, the things correctly, if I get the right training, if I get the right mentorship, you know, I can probably uh, control that risk. Absolutely. And you mentioned a little bit about how you had these doubts. You were like, man, I don't think I could ever fly and talk and figure out where I am and land a plane. <laughs> Obviously, you have figured that out. How far into your training was that? Was that pretty early, or did it take like your um, after you got your license when you're flying a little bit? You kind of put it all together. Well. Some of that stuff never happened in Russia because uh, the type of training I got there, we, we, it was very light on uh, theoretical knowledge. I wasn't really satisfied with the with the uh, the ground school aspect of it. So as a pilot, I didn't think I had all the right stuff knowledge wise in my head. And one of the differences with Russia, there's no uh, no such variety of books and materials like we have here in the U S there is no sporties video course. There is no, you can't go on Amazon and buy like six books about the private pilot stuff. It just doesn't exist. The only thing you have is like, um, books from Soviet union. I, I think my instructor gave me a book from like 1967 about oh my gosh. navigation. And it uses like, <laughs> I think there's a description of a sex stamp in one of the pages. You're like, what the heck? <laughs> uh, which, it wasn't very helpful, you know, but I was using whatever was available to me. Right now, there's, uh, there's some new books coming out and, and local pilots in Russia trying to change the situation. Um, so that's one aspect. And the other aspect, we were doing a light sport. It was kind of like a light sport license. So we mostly were flying around the airfield. So I think I got very good training for flying skills. So like stick and rudder stuff, and it specifically with a light sport. So you always have to be on your rudder kind of like a glider in a way like you could never have your feet on the floor always on the rudder because it moves so much um so i think that was good for me 
And we did some really interesting exercises like low level flying, which for some reason it was in the pilot flight training in Russia. Like we were flying like above the riverbed in the mountain, like in a, like a little bit of hilly terrain, like lower than treetops. Now looking back at it, it was like, what the hell was that? You know, that's, that's not appropriate for like a 30 hour, 30 hour pilot. But that's, you know, that's kind of what we did. Um, so that was fun. Uh, but I came to US here. I realized, you know, my knowledge about weather and, and actual cross country flying was lacking. Um, so I had to work on that a lot as, and radio communication as well, because in Russia it was very light uh, communication wise. Yeah. So what was kind of the biggest difficulty coming here? Obviously, you mentioned kind of the, the knowledge aspect of it. And then there's also the operating aspect where you were up in more of a remote area. You're not really talking to many people where in the States, it's like there's planes all over the place. You got to, if you're flying VFR, you got to be on the constant lookout of other planes. You got to worry about airlines, where you're flying, airspace and all that. What was the biggest difficulty for you when you made that switch? Yeah, the adjustment was insane. Uh, and I didn't even try to convert my, my certificate, my Russian certificate to like an equivalent in the US because I understood that Stuff is very different here. Airspace is different. Regulations are different. Uh, communications are different. All of the um, measurement units, feet, knots, inches, all different. Are we the only country? I think the United States is maybe one other country is still on that system in the whole yeah, world. Yeah, Russia is all metric. Russia is all metric. So, and I figured out, okay, when I came here, I needed some time to adjust in your life. Uh, so I took uh, off from flying for like about three years. And then I basically started from scratch. Uh, I got my private pilot and then my instrument and then my commercial and then ground instructor. And since I was flying such a basic bare bones airplane in, in Siberia, uh, which is A22, it has a six pack, it has a radio, it doesn't have VOR even. Like, and because the VOR is where I live in Siberia. Um, I decided to do something on the opposite side of the spectrum. So I decided I want the most sophisticated airplane with a bunch of computers, the autopilots, the digital this and digital that, because that would be fun for me. That would be different. So I went for a flight school uh, at Wingsfield in Philadelphia that flies Cirrus. And I got my private pilot and SR-20, which I don't recommend anybody. It's expensive, but I uh, could afford it at the time. And it was fun. It was very fun uh, flying that after the six-pack uh, A-22. Absolutely. When you, I, I mean, I obviously, if you can afford it, then why not do it? Like, especially since you kind of have the idea that you don't necessarily want to fly for the airlines or anything like, and you're going to fly for fun and for pleasure. It's like, all right, cool. You can afford it. Go find an SR-20 or an SR-22. You know, it's like, if you can afford it, go enjoy the best. <laughs> Absolutely. It's a very fun airplane. And I felt like I already have very good stick and rudder skills because flying that light sport. So I felt like, well, now I want to really do kind of like a you know, management, managing systems like autopilot, all that stuff, because I wanted to understand all of that stuff. And uh, I was also coming from a technical background. So for me, it was twice the more interesting. Yeah, definitely more fun to have the the kind of the shiny cockpit and everything and all of the screens. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so sure. you are your, so let's say you move to the States, you are finally getting back in aviation, you're picking a flight school. Talk about the process of like, obviously you just saw a newspaper ad called the flight school. You went there, you started flying. Was that process very similar in the States too? Or did you find the, the amount of options you had more overwhelming in choosing a school? It was mind blowing really, because in Russia, in Krasnoyarsk, there was one flight school. Like if you wanted to get a flight, a pilot license, that's where you go. And now even that school is closed because a few years ago, Russian government, there was a crash and uh, an airliner crashed in one of the cities. And there was a big scandal because one of the pilots 
had some, I think there was a bribe involved and he got some sort of a, a rating or certificate that wasn't really fully legal. After that, government shut down every single private school in Russia and they revoked close to 2,000 pilot certificates for people who trained in those flight schools. Can you imagine that here? Some of those people were already like working in airlines and flying commercially. Oh, really? Oh my gosh. They, they were just, their certificate just got yanked out of their hands. And the only option for them to get back into flying would be to go to the government school for three years to get their commercial certificate from scratch. And that's, some of them are still doing that right now. That's unbelievable. Wow. Which is bananas. I think there's, there's less than 10 schools right now in Russia that do flight training, private school, less than 10. In the whole country. The whole country for a population of about 140 million people. When I was looking at schools in, in Philly, I think I found around 10 schools just around Philly. And it was a question of, for me to like, okay, which one is better, which is closer to like less commute, lower price, better airplanes, better instructors. So I did a lot of research about that. But in Russia right now, and back when I was flying there, a lot has changed since then. There is not a lot of options. For example, there is only one flight school in the whole Russia that does multi-engine training, private, like commercial school, like a private school, and instrument rating. So if you want to get an instrument rating, there is one school that you can wait and you can do that, which is, it's bananas. You know, I, I can't even think about it. So when I was researching flying here, first of all, it blew my mind that you can basically get any certificate, you know, private, instrument, commercial all the way to flight instructor, which is, so it basically all in your hands. You get like, if you want to be a flight instructor, please can you get the books, get, get, you know, ready for tests and find an instructor and go do it. It's easy. You know, it's easy for people who are like willing to do the work, but in Russia, it is just impossible. Like if you want to become, let's say a flight instructor, you, you just can't, you just can't because I don't even know what the path would be to become flight instructor. I guess you would have to go to the government school of some kind. I don't know. I don't even know because nobody knows because it's so like a nebulous. Uh, there is no like a clearly outlined plan. Like if you go to FAA website, like I want to be this, here's what you need. You want to be that, here's what you need. Show up at this time, do this test, do this. In Russia, it's so like, well, you got to ask some people. I don't know. You got to find somebody. It's like, it's really, really crazy. It's really sad because I do know a lot of people who like, they want to improve their proficiency. They want to become commercial pilots, not necessarily because they want to work commercially, but they want to get better. They want to get instrument rating for the same purpose or something else, and they just can't. And they just, uh, you know, they just have to get by with having a private pilot license. So, yeah. So let's say you stayed in Russia, you got your private pilot license, but you wanted to do more. Is the only option to kind of move to another country to get more ratings or go out and get more ratings? Uh, so if I stayed in Russia to go to do other country to get ratings? Yeah. So like if you, if you were staying in Russia or say like you have a friend in Russia, that's a pilot or, you know, someone's a pilot, they have their private pilot license or they have their light sport equivalent of the rating and they want more. They want to learn how to fly a multi-engine and they don't want to go to the one school. They want to go somewhere else. Like say they go to find a flight school in Arizona, come here for, for a year, get all their ratings and move back to Russia. Does Russia kind of honor all those ratings because it's an FAA rating or do they kind of be like, nope, sorry, you only have what you have in Russian or in the Russian government ratings? So this is very tricky because Russia is technically an IKEA country. So we have the same kind of deal. So ideally, all every IKEA country, country should respect other countries, other IKEA countries' ratings and certificates. 
but there's a big but. Uh, in 2017, Russia's government made a little slight change in the way they handle valid, uh, certificate validations. And I don't know if you know about validations, but if I'm a Russian pilot, I have a certificate. Let's say I'm an Airbus captain in Russia, and I have a ATP certificate with like 4,000 hours on it. Now, I decide I want to go to U.S. and fly a little bit for myself. Like I want to go to U.S. and I want to validate my Russian certificate in U.S. so they can give me an FAA certificate so I can fly uh, American registered airplanes. It used to be that it was a very simple process. You go to U.S., you contact FAA. FAA, on your behalf, contacts Russian uh, Aviation Authority, and they validate, okay, this guy really is an ATP. He really has $5,000, et cetera. And then you get an FAA certificate right there and then. And that's it was a foreign-based certificate, so it basically attached to your Russian certificate. So if your Russian certificate disappears, your FAA certificate disappears as well. However, 2017... Russia basically stopped responding to the FAA's request just because just they just stopped responding and they do it so that Russian pilots don't leave Russia to work somewhere else. So now, essentially, Russian certificate is now became instead of an ICAO certificate, it's now like an internal certificate that only works in Russia. Which is, it's crazy because for all those people who, who spend so much time and resources to get those certificates in Russia, now they can't use them anywhere else in the world unless you're flying a Russian registered airplane, um, which was a big bummer. And it's kind of, um, now the value of a Russian certificate is much lower. So I would not recommend anybody getting a Russian certificate from scratch because of that. Because if you get an FAA cert or an EASA cert, you can go to Russia and they will, will validate it. And because they want pilots really fat, really bad. Pilots, They're like, yeah, you right. know how to fly. Come on in. Let's go. <laughs> they will validate it. Right. And you actually, with an FAA commercial cert, you can actually go work in a Russian uh, uh, airline right now because of the shortage. Are there a decent amount of um, children or just the younger generation that want to be pilots in Russia? But I mean, obviously, it's kind of a two-part question. Like, are there people that want to fill those roles as pilots? And then... Is it obviously the only way for them to do it from what we're talking about is either come here, pay for it, move back to Russia and go fly or to get everything with the Russian government. Is that correct? I don't actually know how to gauge that. I think there is a decent amount of, of, of boys and girls who want to be pilots. Um, I definitely see that on Instagram. I have a Russian Instagram account for Russian pilots and stuff. And, um, but I don't really know how many, all I know is that, um, Aviation in Russia is kind of a, it's a niche thing. Uh, people don't know much about it. Uh, in the U.S., pretty much everybody knows at least one private pilot or some kind of pilot. It's, it's not a surprise. Oh, you know, a pilot. In Russia, it's much more rare. Like when I was growing up, I did not know a single pilot of any kind. And I would kill to have like, I know an airline pilot and I can talk with, you know, about airplanes with that, with that person. I would just kill for that as, as a young, as a young boy, as a young man. Um, but I just didn't have an opportunity for that. Do you think the, the Russian community and the Russian government or whoever needs to hear this or whatever, do you think they're open to changing kind of the, the relationship with general aviation in the country? Or do you think they're pretty set in stone and it's never going to change? So there's a big difference. There is a Russian community of pilots and, 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 and people who want to be pilots. And those people are, crazy passionate about aviation. I would even say that the, the average Russian pilot or a student pilot is more passionate about aviation than an, uh, an average American pilot because of the obstacles they have to go through. 
it, it is so much more difficult. Like people spend like fifteen, twenty thousand dollars sometimes to get their basic certificates, and some some of them have to commute for five hours to an airport and stuff like that. Um, so. Russian pilots and Russian com aviation community really wants to change the laws and really wants to make it easier and really wants to make it more affordable and, and available to people. That's for sure. But the Russian government on the other side, they see general aviation as a way to decrease the statistics in accidents. You think about it. If you are a Russian uh, government guy and your goal is to decrease the number of accidents from this percentage to that percentage, the easiest way for you to do that is to make it so that the general aviation doesn't fly, you know, as much as possible. Because, you know, general aviation, there's a lot of small airplanes. We obviously have a higher accident rate. So if you ground the entire general aviation fleet, your number on paper of accident rate will go down, which will look good on you. You'll probably get a promotion, you know. <laughs> and I feel like that's where the aviation safety stands in, in general government-wise in Russia. So there's a lot of obstacles. Every year they make it, it seems like they make it more difficult for people to become pilots and use their airplanes and fly, which is, which is a big bummer. That is a big bummer. I mean, I guess like that guy might think he's solving a problem, but he's more solving an immediate problem, but creating an even bigger problem, say in like five or 10 years, you know? So it's, um, it's unfortunate. It's really unfortunate. Absolutely. I mean, even now they see that they don't have enough pilots and Five ten years down the road, it's gonna be it's gonna be really tough for them to to fill the spots in their all of their Airbuses and Boeing's, and and then I feel like they're just gonna they will end up putting people who are not ready who are inexperienced on the right seats and left seats, and then that will inevitably uh, lead to higher accident rate. Yeah, it's a kind of a snowball effect, you know. It just kind of once that snowball keeps going, and those they start cutting costs or cutting kind of corners like that. It's just going to keep getting bigger and bigger and bigger and think more things will happen. Yeah. But you know what? The guy who started the snowball effect would already be retired by then. And he will have a really good house. And yeah, he lived a great car. life. <laughs> yeah. So, and most of those government aviation, uh, uh, folks, they, they're not flyers. They're not pilots. I think the main uh, aviation guy in Russia right now is not a pilot. Has never been a pilot. If, if, if I remember correctly, I may be mistaken. So, he doesn't even know anything about it. Interesting. What would, uh, what, so obviously like light aircraft, general aviation and training aircraft, not so much, but what about like business jets? There's obviously a bunch of people in Russia have a lot of money. They are flying on private jets. Is that a relatively strong community or is even that kind of thought of a big no-no by the government? I think, yeah, I think there's a pretty strong business jet community. Uh, yeah, as you said, there is a lot of uh, oil and gas industry folks. They're really, really rich. They fly, um, they fly, uh, what is it? Gold uh, streams, globals. The, the Pilatuses. The oh, Fal yeah. I think Falcon 50. Uh, Falcons are really popular in Russia for some reason. Uh, Gulf streams, maybe. Uh, yeah, I don't really know much about that. Uh, but I do see a, a bunch of people on Instagram who fly business jets. Do you know? Do you know how someone would get a job like that? Is it kind of do they hire probably more uh, outsider pilots since it's so hard to be a pilot in Russia, or do they try to stick with the Russian pilots? I think they'll take anyone because again, take it with a grain of salt. I'm not really into that business uh, in Russia, and I haven't lived there in, in eight years. So, but I think because of the shortage, everybody wants like most pilots want to work in airlines still in Russia. Like they want to go to Aeroflot or uh, you know something else. So. 
I think BizJets, if you have a commercial certificate, if you have some, you know, a thousand, fifteen hundred hours or something like that, I'm, I think they'll take your right seat pretty much, you know, very quickly. They'll, they'll have, yeah. And you, it can be an FAA commercial cert. It can be a Russian commercial cert, uh, which, you know, a few years ago, it was possible to get a commercial certificate in Russia in a private school. Um, right now it's not possible, but it used to be. All right, let's go back to um, to your story a little bit. I'm reading through the email again, and you said that your very first instructor was a retired colonel of the Soviet Air Force. He must have had some uh, pretty interesting stories or interesting teaching techniques. Like you said, you were flying below the tree line a couple of times. Was that with him? Yes, that was with him. <laughs> Sounds like he yeah. might have been a little bit of a cowboy when he was up there flying. Yes, yes, he definitely was a cowboy. Uh I don't want to talk about him too much because uh, he actually died in an aircraft crash recent, a few years ago. Um, so I loved the man really a lot. Was so be, because he was my first instructor, we really had a, like a special bond with him. So when I started flying, he was like this salty Soviet Union fighter, bomber, pilot, or something like that. I think he flew some crazy jets and stuff. Um, but he was not a great instructor. <laughs> I mean. Because he was like a tough military guy, which usually those people don't really make good instructors. He was sometimes he would be abrupt with his the way he handled the situation. Instead of being patient and explaining stuff to me, he would be like just like you know, with simple stuff. What do you understand? You know, stuff like that. Uh, which now I'm a candidate for CF candidate for CFI, so I'm I'm getting more and more into that mindset, and I understand. Well, you know, that's not the most effective way to teach like a complete newbie pilot. About stuff, especially I'm not in a military school. You know, I'm doing it for fun, so my is to enjoy it. I want to have fun. <laughs> Don't yell at me, man. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> exactly. You would sometimes like curse when I do something, in- um, but that's fine. I I was okay with that because I figured that well, he's so experienced. I'm going to absorb as a sponge so much from him, so it's okay. Um, kind of like a paternal situation was. You know, he was he was much older than me, of course, um, but he did teach me. Some things that I then regretted that he showed me, such as he was kind of a little bit of a hooligan. So he would do like, like, for example, we would scare the cows. We would go, there would be like a field and there would be cows on it. He would be like, oh, let's do this. And it would go, he would dive down, scare the shit out of those cows. They would run away. And for him, it was fun. But I, he didn't realize that there was a young, very green student pilot next to him who was absorbing all of that, right? Because as flight instructors, we are responsible for not showing stuff that we don't want our students to do later by themselves. And he told me, like, well, don't do it by yourself. But, like, you just showed me, dude. Like, this is how you 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 handle the situation. So. Well, yeah, and you associate that with fun. And your first instructor, like, a lot of times you kind of view them as, like, a god. Like, they're, like, they know everything. They're teaching you everything. Everything they do is is great and good and perfect. And you kind of want to imitate that. And so when you go fly, be like, oh, cool. Like, hey, watch, this is this is a, apparently what we do to have fun in aviation. So let's go scare some cows, you know? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I did that. And I did. I did solo flights when I did the same thing. Because in my mind, you know, it was normal. It was like a deviation normalization kind of situation. Uh, uh, so when I came to U.S., I... My new instructor here was was a completely different guy. Very conservative, very safety oriented. You know, any flight below three thousand feet is unnecessary unless you're taking off or landing. Yeah. And that mentality was just like, wow, that is that was a shock to me. It was amazing, and I consciously made an effort of kind of 
purging that stuff that I learned from my first instructor, some of that stuff. He did teach me a lot of good stuff too, of course. He was a good pilot. But some of that cowboy stuff, I had to just say, nope, that's not the way we do stuff in aviation because my my safety, it sounds cheesy, but safety is not my number one priority, especially when I fly with my wife, my kid. I want to be the safest pilot in the world. I want to be the most boring pilot there is. Absolutely. You know? A boring flight is a great flight. Sometimes, like if my passenger falls asleep when we fly with him, to me, it's the best, uh, you know, it's the best thing that can happen. Yeah, I would agree. <laughs> no excitement. I've had enough excitement in some of my flights. Like, I don't want any more excitement. I'm good for a lifetime. <laughs> <laughs> I, I can't say, like, because I know you flew freight and stuff, and that sounded crazy. I don't have that experience, uh, but I did have that experience in Siberia, which was a little bit of that. Uh, so I agree. I don't want any exciting flights. If I want an exciting flight, I call my uh, aerobatic instructor. I strap myself to his tatabri. We put a parachute on, and then we do exciting flight. And then I throw up, and I go home. <laughs> and that's, that, I think that's enough. Yeah, absolutely. Get out of your system. It's like, oh, I'm good. I don't want to do it anymore. Now let's go fly straight and level. That's really funny. I was going to ask more about, or I was going to ask about the culture differences and coming from the instructors, but I think you kind of touched on that a little bit and kind of talked about that. So kind of come up with next. It's um. So you came here, got your, your training private. And when you got your private license, was your goal to continue getting as many ratings as possible? Or you, when you first got your private, you're like, all right, cool. I'm a private. I can kind of do everything I want to do. I'm good. I did not have any plans to actually get any more certificates uh, because I was doing it just for fun. And I wanted to travel on the airplane. I wanted to explore the United States a little bit because it was such a big, interesting country. I got my private and for I was for next year. I was just flying with my wife, my son, and we were just like having fun. And it was amazing. Um, but then pretty quickly I realized, well, if I want to make any, any long distance flights without an instrument rating kind of gets really tricky planning wise. And some, I have to cancel too many flights because of like simple clouds and stuff. Um, so a year later I started working on my instrument stuff. Um, and then I got my instruments. And then I think a few years after that, I was realizing, well, it's been a while since I trained for anything. So I'm kind of getting a little bit rusty and nothing forces you more to open the books and go through this stuff and go through the theory than having like a check ride scheduled. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and that's because like, I try forcing myself, well, I'm just going to go read like uh, P-Hack on this evening, right? But since there's no pressure, there's no check ride, no test, you're kind of like, eh, I understand that stuff. Um, so I decided to do my commercial just because of that to push myself. Okay, let's get back um, in the game. Let's go again through all of the uh, theoretical knowledge and stuff like that. Yeah, I think um, it's a, that's, that's kind of a good thing to talk about because you know, you're at your best. Like your knowledge is at its peak when you're getting ready to take a check ride. And then a lot of times after the check ride, you're not really opening those books anymore. You know, you kind of let that knowledge kind of, you might still know it, but it's not as fast and as immediate as what you once knew it. So in a way, you might be kind of, hindering your pilot skills or you might not be the best pilot you can possibly be all the time yeah it's all downhill from check ride for sure because you like if you're really on top of the horse at the check ride you feel like oh yeah, i can do anything they like, ask me like do power off 180 accuracy Pfft, easy you know t- two months after that you're like what's power off what yeah, <laughs> Where? Like, no i'll do the ils we're good <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and especially commercial was really useful because after getting my instrument flight instrument rating i got so much into instruments that I kind of suffered as a visual pilot because there was so much now this distraction because like, okay, I got to be looking at instruments now. And commercial kind of brought me back into the visual flying because again, 
no instruments, no ILS, no nothing. You just got like fly visual, all these complicated maneuvers. Which I appreciated that because it kind of got me back on the, in the visual game. Oh, it definitely does. And I kind of run into that still right now. Cause I mean, obviously flying corporate and flying all the time, you're, you're flying high fire all the time. So once you got to do visual, you're kind of like, Oh, all right. I've done this in a while. So it's always fun for me to, to fly a visual approach when I have that opportunity and fly in a traffic pattern and make the calls and kind of go back to, to private pilot 101 because it sharpens your skills. Right. It's kind of funny. You do mostly IFR. So for you, visual is funny. I do mostly visual. For me, IFR is a lot of fun. Like I go and I do like IFR approach. I do like a circling approach and this and that. That's I fun. go back. Uh, it is a lot of fun. It's like a super challenge. Yeah, no, it definitely is. And I still, I still love flying IFR. IFR is still my favorite type of flying. Like I, I love flying approaches down to minimums. I just think that's like a big adrenaline rush and a lot of fun. And the plane I fly is highly automated. So it, it flies it very, very well. And a lot of times I'll, I'll still hand fly it, but I have a perfect magenta triangle to follow all the way down. So it's, it's hard to get out of, uh, out of limitations and limits, but it's still fun. So do you do raw data approaches at all? Like ever without flight director and stuff? Um, sometimes on visuals, if we, um, yeah, we'll, I'll turn off the flight director and we'll just fly ourselves. But we also have, if you turn off the flight director, you also have other indications if you really want to use them on your screen to show you where you're going. So <laughs> at all times you have some kind of director, but we do turn off the flight director sometimes. Mostly in visual approaches, or if like we have um, ATC kept us high and we're still trying to stay stable, we we kind of might turn it off and or we'll follow the little. We have like a little green dot on there that we follow. Got it. Yeah, so it's uh it's fun, it's cool. Um, let's get back. I got one more. What else do I have? Here's one. What was the toughest roadblock for you? Maybe not even a roadblock, but just toughest situation you found or you faced coming from russia to the states with flying i don't know if it was culturally i don't know if it was a language barrier or just the the theoretical knowledge like you talked about what was the toughest roadblock that you faced honestly it was smooth as butter after what i went through in russia uh, with my first certificate when everything was confusing there was no material it was like everything was like weird and you don't know what's going on here, everything was so clear. I just went to the FAA website. I got everything. I got all the books. I got the sportage video course. Everything was just like, okay, you just have to do it. And I had a huge advantage because I was, I already was in the U.S. and I did not have to leave. And I had a good English language proficiency at that time because I was working for an American company for many years before that. So, but, but for many, many Russian speaking people coming to U.S., getting their license, the biggest hurdle is, of course, language. Because not only you have to, people worry about radio communication, but radio comms is one thing. And it's usually simple because, you know, there's like 50 patterns that can happen on radio. And that's it. The biggest hurdle is talking to your instructor because they're trying to teach you. And if you don't understand fully what they're saying, there's going to be like a bigger bit of a barrier in learning right there and then. Uh, and that can extend your training a lot if you don't understand what they're saying, if they don't understand what you're saying, and then you're trying to like work it out in the airplane. Um, so I would say that's, that's what, that's a big aspect of it. Yeah, I would definitely agree. I never kind of ran into that situation cause I wasn't a CFI, but some of my friends were CFIs and they went out to Arizona and some of the, the States out West or in Florida where they have a lot of international students. And they would always say, I mean, a lot of them can fly really well, but the toughest thing is just communication because what you do you think is just a very common word that everyone should know can confuse them. And that can really cause a disconnect. It can just be like one little word. It can mess up the whole flight. Like they could just be like get kind of frazzled from there. So communication and aviation obviously is key. 
And when you add someone that doesn't understand language as well as maybe they should to fly an airplane or even just um, communication wise, it, it can be really kind of hinder safety and hinder the learning experience for the student. Yeah, for sure. And, and a lot of the uh, training depends on instructor trusting the student because, you know, they're not going to sign you off for solo unless they really, really trust you that you're going to do the right thing. The same with the cross-country solo, same with the check ride. So, and that trust can't exist if there is a communication barrier. And so your instructor, you know, would have soloed you at 15 hours if you had this trust, if you had a really good uh, communication between you two. But since your communication kind of is not great, he doesn't really fully understand what's going on in your head because you can't really fully express it because your language is bad. Then you're not going to solo at 15. You're going to solo like at 19 or 20, you know. And that kind of, you know, the whole training becomes more expensive and longer. Absolutely. And the goal is to do it as cheap as possible, <laughs> as cheap, yeah, safe so, and fast as possible. Especially if you're coming from Russia and you have like some of them have two months to do it because they have to go back because they have a business waiting for them. They have a work waiting for them. They have a family waiting for them. So they come in here, they do two months of training and they have to go back, which is, I mean, super tough. No, it definitely is. It's uh, it it can make and yeah, time constraints because, like you said, weather gets in the way. You're doing your private pilot license. You go to California and you get a low IFR for a while. It's like, all right, cool. There's no flying. It's like, but I only have two weeks left. It's like, exactly. sorry, man. Like, I don't know what to tell you. We can't just go fly in the clouds. Yeah. So it definitely stuff. makes it tough. So I guess here's another question I have: is um, would you ever? So I guess the most similar type of flying to what you came from, from Russia would be Alaska. Would you ever want to go to Alaska and kind of fly, fly some planes on skis again and, and, and live in that environment? Or do you think you are perfectly fine enjoying the, the nice serious life in Philly? I would definitely, definitely love to go to Alaska for sure. And uh, the mountains, the lakes, all of this stuff. Absolutely. It's on my list. And I would love to go there to get a float rating maybe or bush flying stuff experience. Taking a series to Alaska, especially SR20, which is normally aspirated, eh, probably not a great idea because like I would be so limited with the you know, IFR days when like MEE is what, like 12,000 or something. Uh, I would take spend half a day climbing to that. Um, so I think bush flying would be super fun. You know, I think they have courses where you pay like a prepay and you get like a package. You even get like a lodge and you get like a float and you get a check right at the end. Of, yeah, I'll do that. Cool. That's awesome. And my last question for this is going to be, what's your goal with aviation? So obviously you have another career, you are doing aviation for fun, you want to be a CFI. What's your, your end goal for, for aviation and what, what, what would you consider kind of a successful career looking back on your aviation career in 20, 30 years? Well, yeah. So as you said, I have a, I have a very, very uh, satisfying career that I enjoy a lot in computers. So I don't look at aviation as a way to make money, but I do get more involved with the aviation community. Uh, I want to give back. I, I honestly want to bring back, I want to bring more people to aviation because it's kind of a, I don't want to say it's like a dying craft, but it sort of is in a way because we have less and less active pilots every year if you don't count each. And, you know, the flight schools are closing and the airplanes are so expensive. Um, so I want to work with people who are excited to get into aviation to, to help them, to like guide them to, to, even if I can't be their CFI, I can, I can consult them and say like, okay, this is what you need. This is how you pick a good CFI. This is how you pick a good school. I just want to get involved in that more. Um, I think it's a, um, I think it's a worthy cost. Yeah, I definitely agree. And that's one of the reasons why I started this is obviously, like you said, 
aviation, even how great it is in America compared to other countries, it's still dying and it's still shrinking and we need to do everything we can. And I think that these mediums like Instagram, podcasts, the YouTube creators, I think that they're doing a great job of kind of capturing that interest of the younger generation because that younger generation might see some of the other pilots and they're like, oh, cool, I want to be a pilot. And then that can keep that funnel of young talent coming in for aviation. So I definitely think that's a, a worthy cause. Yeah, a lot of people just, especially young people, they just don't realize that it's available to them and they don't realize that you can do it. Like if I did it, I'm from like <laughs> this mining town in northern Siberia, everybody can do it for sure. And they just need some guidance and they need some support. And because, I mean, every, training can be a daunting task. And that's another thing why I want to become a CFI because I want to do it not to build time, but I want to do it because I want to create a really, really fun, positive learning experience for people. I want to, I want to rely heavily on scenario based stuff. And I want it so that people are excited to go flight training because a lot of the time it gets boring. You just do the pattern work all day and then you do like turns around the point all day. And it's kind of like, why am I doing this? You know, I, d- I didn't want to become a pilot to do pattern work all day. That's boring. Right. It's not fun. No, you come, you become a pilot so you can go explore, so you can go kind of express your freedom of flight and go enjoy it. Yeah. And I feel like that has to be integrated into the training so that people get the benefits of pilots from day one. Like you're a pilot now. It's your first discovery flight, but you are a pilot today. And we're going to do this fun thing today. And because, I mean, there's a lot of dropouts from flight training. A lot of people don't get to check right because they drop out. Some of it is because of money, of course, but some of it because people just get burned out. They realize, well, you know, it's not as fun as I thought it is. And sometimes it's because their CFI was just checked out in a way. It was really, it wasn't really interesting in showing that fun, positive aspect of aviation and training. Yeah, it's hard for a, a flight school and because obviously they want to get you done and they want to make their money and they kind of get caught up in the pilot mill aspect of it of, get as many people in as fast as possible, get them out and go. And this is the training regimen. We stick to this. We don't do anything outside of this, but that works great to make money, but that's not great in creating a great and thriving aviation community. And that's not great at helping someone that's struggling with a flight lesson and just doesn't think that they can do it. So they walk away. So it's, it's really a a kind of a, a very weird balance of trying to figure out what's fun and what's training and how to balance that to make sure you're not wasting their money and making them pay so much extra money, but you're also getting all the training done, you know? Yes. That's why part 141 doesn't really interest me a lot. I'm I'm really looking to part 61 kind of training. And that's what I usually recommend to people who are doing it not for career, but for fun, because you can really adjust it to your liking. You can pick an instructor you like, you can pick an airplane you like, you can really do it the way you want. And yes, scenario-based stuff typically takes more time. You're not going to finish at 50 hours or 60 hours. But I think for some students, that's okay. For people, like when I was training, I told my CFI, like I, when I was getting my private pilot here in the U.S., I told him, like, I'm not striving to finish it as quickly as possible because I told him, like, when I get my certificate, I want to be confident in that airplane. I'm going to take my wife with me, my my uh, little kid, and I want to be confident that I, I'm a good pilot. So let's do extra flights. Let's do, I'm going to absorb as much as I can while you're still next to me. And, um, and I feel like as a CFI, as a future CFI, if I talk to a student, like, and we set this straight, like, okay, are you willing to fly extra hours so we can do more scenario based stuff to more, to make it more fun for you? Somebody might say, you know, I don't need it. I'm fine. I'm, I'm motivated as is. Let's just go through the shortest route and that's fine. But somebody might say, sure. It sounds fun. Let's do it. Yeah. 
Absolutely. It's like, and I think it's also important for the flight instructor to recognize the burnout stage. Like there's definitely signs, like everyone goes through it. Aviation's hard. Like at some point, everyone's going to hit a wall and whether it's studies, whether it's flying, whether it's money, and they need that flight instructor, they need a mentor, they need a friend to kind of remind them of how much fun they had on their private pilot license or on their uh, first solo and kind of remind them of why they're in it. Because like I said, everyone kind of reaches that wall where it might look like it's easier to walk away when really you just need one more flight, one more fun flight to get you past that mental block that you have. Yeah, a lot of people don't realize, especially people who've never did flight training, they don't realize how difficult it is to be in that mindset. And usually you do it alone because you are the only person you know locally where you live that does flight training right now. That's typical. And so you don't have the support network. You have this like, okay, let's pull this through, through this. And if you have a great instructor who is also your mentor, who you can call just to talk and like, you know, maybe so they can motivate you, that's great. But that's not always the case. And uh, I didn't always have had that. I didn't always have that, uh, which was, yeah. So you really have to be either really self-motivated or you really should seek for that uh, support network to go to go through all of the training. Definitely. And the good thing about training in the States, as opposed to maybe Russia, is that you have these resources for you. You have organizations like AOPA, EAA, or Professional Pilots of Tomorrow for mentorship. And you have Instagram to reach out to other pilots to be like, hey, man, like I'm just starting to be a pilot and just chat and talk and create those friendships and relationships. Yeah, yeah, it's very, very valuable. R- Russia also, they have some communities and, and it's a, it's an even tighter knit community in Russia than here in the U.S. because there's, there's just a very small amount of pilots. Everybody knows everybody. And so people, it's kind of amazing. The government kind of works to undermine pilots in Russia to make it difficult for them to get certificates and difficult for them to buy airplanes and stuff. We didn't even touch the fact like how difficult it is to do like, annual inspections in Russia on airplanes. That's a whole different topic and it's completely screwed up. But but people's response to that kind of hostile government is that they just work closely together. They share books, they share uh, materials, they share E6B. Somebody went to US, bought some E6B, brought them to Russia. They share them all. And and it's kind of amazing to look at that. It's very exciting. And and I have a Russian Instagram and a lot of people reach out to me from Russia, like asking questions. They're like, how do I get an FAA certificate? How do I do this? And I just, I, I consult them as much as I can. Uh, I just point them to like, okay, go read this FIR, go read this AIM, go read this book and stuff like that. And yeah, man, it's really exciting to be in that space. Well, if anyone from Russia or that wants to reach out to your Russian Instagram, you can go and plug it if you want in case so they can kind of find you and reach out to you. I would plug it, but uh, it would be impossible for me to spell it in English. Uh, <laughs> you can so say it in it, Russian if you want. It's if, all good. Anybody Russian speaking listening to this, it's Nebazabogrom. Uh, That's the name of my Instagram. Oh, yeah. That, that was perfectly easy. I totally understand that. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. What do you think? Americans don't understand that? Come on. <laughs> yeah, no idea. Oh, that's cool, man. I have one more section for you. Be a quick little rapid fire section and then we can kind of call it a day. Um, like I said, I appreciate you coming on. I appreciate you talking about the differences in general aviation in Russia and in the States and just the great conversation. I think that we just had a great conversation about aviation and it's so cool that just we can have this in common. Like we've never met before, but we have aviation in common and we can sit here and talk for an hour, an hour and a half and have like no awkward moments. You know, it's just so cool and so fascinating that aviation is such a strong community. It can bring people together. It is a very special place. And every time I meet another aviator, we usually have like a a nice conversation, really wholesome. And uh, yeah, there is no this like a weird phase when like we don't understand each other because like, okay, you're an aviator, I'm an aviator. Like that already 
like we know what kind of people we are because of that. And I enjoy these talks uh, greatly, and I can talk about airplanes all day, honestly. Same, same here. Well, cool. I have a rapid fire section, so I want you to answer the question as quick and as fast as possible. Sound good? Sure. What's your favorite airplane you've ever flown? Uh, Cirrus. I like Cirrus. What is your least favorite airplane you've ever flown? Uh, none. Uh, well, I, I flew some uh, low wing. I think it was a some kind of uh, Grumman Tiger or something like that, which I didn't really enjoy that much, but uh, not really because uh, I don't have much experience with types. I'm, I really stick to the single type as much. Stick to what you like. Yeah. What's your favorite airline to fly on? Uh, none. Uh, I don't care. Are they all the same to me? <laughs> What's uh, what about uh, favorite airline color scheme or livery? Uh, not really. I'm not into airline. Uh, <laughs> I know you asked this question. I was thinking about it. Like, what am I going to say? I don't know. They, I, I don't really care about it. So flying funny. as a passenger doesn't really excite me that much anyway. So I just sleep usually. <laughs> That's not a bad idea, actually. Um, all right. So do you have a favorite airline or do you like bigger airplanes? Do you have one that kind of is like, man, that's a cool airplane? I like the A350 and the 787. Yeah, those are cool. I like those too. So you like the newest, best technology. Yeah, I do. Yeah. yeah. So because, whenever the next plane comes out, you're gonna be like, "Yeah, I like that one more." <laughs> yeah, because some people like crazy about the Mad Dog and stuff like that. But I grew up in in like a you know like a was no other than Everything everything around me was old and rustic. So I really love the stuff that's new and shiny. Although there is some old Russian airplanes that are really dear to my heart, like the Antonov twenty four and the Tupolev one fifty four. And Tupolev is kind of like a, a seven two seven equivalent. Um. Because that's those are the airplanes I flew as a kid, and those are the airplanes that are like magic to me. Because I look at the cockpit of a Tupolev, and I was like, "Oh, this this is just amazingly insane." So it's like the equivalent to the Mad Dog to some people in the states. Then for them, like the the kind of the uh, the love for it because they're around it when they're younger. Yeah, I think so, and and it's really bare bones, like no electronics, no computers, no PFDs. Uh, and it's just like a lot of uh, steam gauges and, and it's crazy. And, and it requires, I think, four people to fly, sometimes five. Oh, wow. Jeez. I don't even know how they fit all in there. Yeah, I don't either. <laughs> what, um, what's your favorite airport to fly to? Uh, no, I don't care. Is there any airport, <laughs> any place to go fly? Destination, I don't care. Oh, you mean like, uh, like, okay, so hold on. General aviation, because I was yeah, thinking about it. Yeah, you. Yeah, like you personally flying a Cirrus. Which I love airport? going to Block Island. Okay. Uh, it, it, I don't know if you've been there. It's a really small island. Um, it's between Long Island and Martha's Vineyard. And it has a nice little airport in the middle of the island. And you can land there. And then you can walk all the way to the little beach town. And you can go to the beach. And it's, it's, it's really, really nice. Cool. I'll have to check it out. How long is the runway? I think it's uh, 3,000. Okay. Too small for the plane that I fly, but maybe I'll have to go fly Sears up there one day. Yeah, I see Pilatus is coming in. I see the air coming in on the twin engine uh, distance. What is Islander or something? Yeah, the uh, Cape Air. They do a lot of that kind of stuff up there. Um, yeah. Let's see. What is... So obviously we talked about you really like flying IFR. If you had to choose, would you choose an IFR flight or a VFR flight? I choose an IFR flight, especially if it's in actual conditions, because I don't get that often. Uh, you know, during winter with icing with a, with SR20, it's kind of almost impossible to get any IMC time. And in the summer, usually when it's IMC conditions, I don't really have anywhere to go because usually we go to have fun to beach and stuff like that. And if it's IMC in the region, usually it's, you know, not, uh, not a good day to go flying. Oh, usually not. 
if you had all the money in the world to buy your dream airplane, what would it be? Right now, I'm keeping it uh, close to home, so I'll just get an SR22. Uh, I think it's a really cool airplane, and it would work really well with what experience I have. If you would have a dream scenario of um, maybe one day you have the opportunity to go fly in the bush in Alaska or to stay flying in SR-22 in Philly or just in the, the lower 48, would you choose staying here or would you go up to Alaska and go have some of that experience of flying? That's, that's a difficult question. I, I would love to go flying bush in Alaska, but I don't want to live in Alaska because <laughs> I kind of I lived in a place like Alaska. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it gets really long winters, really dark, really depressing. So um, I'll probably stay here. What are your favorite aviation accessories to have with you when you fly? I never fly with my without my iPad with ForeFlight and Stratos. Like if if my iPad is is not with me, I'm just not going to fly because everything is in there. Absolutely, I would 100 percent agree. It's crazy how 10 years ago or 15 years ago, no one even flew with an iPad. No one knew what iPad was, and now we're so dependent on iPads. It's crazy. It is amazing because like now I don't even care what MFD I have because we have a really old Avidyne MFD, which is like garbage, but I don't care because like I have a much better thing. Four flights cheaper and better than what you have. Yeah. It's really incredible. Yeah. Um, uh, let's see. What else do I have? Getting I, have the, I have the ugliest airplane. If you yes. Want. There you go. What is the ugliest airplane? It's the definitely the Handley Page Victor, which I don't know who designed it. I don't know how it happened. I don't know how they <laughs> haven't seen what they're doing. It. Uh, it's either Victor or Nimrod. And Nimrod. <laughs> Nimrod. You know the Nimrod? No, I don't. I have to look that up. <laughs> You'll have to look it up. It's just like, oh my god, it looks like he, it's it's insane. That's really funny. All right, uglier than the Piaggio. I like the Piaggio. Yeah, I know people kind of hate it a little bit, but uh, I think it looks really interesting. It's definitely interesting. I will give you that. Oh, there's the Nimrod. All right. That is pretty ugly. <laughs> All right. Yeah. It's really funny because I feel like I, whenever I say the Piaggio, I, people get like kind of upset with me, but it's like, I just think it's ugly. Like that's it. Like it's a great performing airplane, but it's also funny because people keep sending me photos of ugly airplanes. Like, all right. Yeah. Maybe the Piaggio isn't the ugliest airplane in the world. There are some really yeah. ugly airplanes that were made. Yeah, especially for some reason, uh, United Kingdom's airplanes, <laughs> for some reason, they just have a really weird design sense, like the Victor or the Nimrod. I love the Vulcan, though. The Vulcan is really cool. Yeah, if no one's looked up the Nimrod, I highly recommend them look it up. It is an interesting looking airplane. <laughs> it's just terrible. Right? Yeah. It's, like, it's like it's like two airplanes. They kind of got like meshed mushed together you know it's like one airplane landed on top of another airplane and they kind of stuck together and they keep kept flying together after it's that it's like an uglier version of airbus's beluga whale and, and i didn't I, even know that was possible <laughs> <laughs> i kind of like the beluga though yeah. <laughs> but you know what i mean though like it's like they yes, did yes, yeah yes, it's yes, just yes. like interesting well cool Ilya. i appreciate you coming on like i said earlier i appreciate the conversation we had it was a great conversation about aviation and I think it's going to be a valuable conversation for people to listen to and just either be reminded about the great opportunities they have in the States or if someone is in your position and they're in a, a different country and they want to fly, it's still possible. And you kind of can lay down the route and kind of maybe they can reach out to you if they're Russian and figure out what you did and follow your footsteps. So I appreciate you coming on. It was a pleasure talking to you, Justin. And uh, I wish you all the best with the podcast and uh, you're building the next biggest aviation media company. <laughs> I appreciate it, man. It's a goal. So we'll see. <laughs> Well, I'm here to help. I appreciate it. Thank you.
And that is a wrap of episode 84 of the Pilot the Pilot podcast. I hope you enjoyed the conversation between the differences in the Russian flying community and the American flying community. So if you enjoyed this episode, please leave us through on iTunes. Check out our Patreon and our website, pilotthepilothq.com. Aviation, if you ever want to get in contact with me, you can email me, pilotthepilothq at gmail.com or hit me up on Instagram. It's a New Year's resolution to get better at responding to DMs and emails. So hit me up. I'll try to get back to you. I hope you guys have a great day and as always, happy flying.